This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We have so many changes on this week's episode of the show before the show. Number one, my microphone sounds okay. It doesn't sound like I'm calling in from a submarine in 1949. Uh, Number two, well, at least I hope anyway. I don't know. Maybe it does. Uh, Number two, Ben and Sam are in like the most professional uh, setting that we have ever recorded an episode of the show before the show podcast. I'm very impressed. I feel very uh, inadequate today. I'm sitting in a hotel room in Fargo, North Dakota, because I have a basketball game to broadcast here tonight. You dudes are in like an actual studio. This is, um, we're at two different ends of the spectrum here. Yeah, we're, we are in a, uh, a studio at MLB HQ, which reminds me very much of a starship or a spaceship. It does, it does it, really it look like, thick. yeah, like you're on the bridge of, uh, of an intergalactic warship of some kind. Yeah, which gives me great hope that baseball is going to make it to the next space age. We're just going to take this and put it into the satellite that MLB HQ will be based out of uh, moving forward when we move into our Star Trek years. Um, but yeah, we're trying trying something new. If we're, like we've said in previous weeks, you know, if we're doing video more and putting more of these clips on YouTube, we wanted to give you guys a little bit better of a backdrop. Um, you know, some weeks we might still do some of the the great named uh, conference rooms here at MLB headquarters, but for now we're we're uh, recording from space. It feels like, except for the weightlessness, it does. We're very much good. firmly planted on the ground. But otherwise, that is a bummer because that would have been super cool if we were doing this show and you happen to be weightless. Yeah, it does feel like we're in space, but you know, maybe just hurtling through space with no chance of escape, just towards infinity, and just knowing we'll never get home again. Right. Is it looks very sleek and it looks very nice, but when you realize that this is all you will see, these four walls, as you're stuck in the infinite void, it's not too great, is it? This has been Ben's missive to Major Tom. <laughs> That'll do it for this week's episode. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, now we welcome you to this week's episode of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. Tyler Mon, Benjamin Hill, and uh, Mr. Autumn Man, Sam Dykstra, drinking out of his Duncan cup and wearing his festive sweater. It's not autumn, Sam. You got you to gotta upgrade these things. What, how is this an autumn sweater? This is like a very wintry eh. like hoodie. Eh. When you pulled the Duncan cup up and you just like perfectly angled it toward the camera and it had the branding on the side. I was like, oh, look at this. Sam Dykstra living out his October life. Yeah, he also brushed a stray leaf from his hair. <laughs> just... Oh, thank you for hair. not commenting on my hygiene on the podcast. Thank you very much. Speaking of hair, uh, I regularly comment on how good the heads of hair on you dudes are. Ben, the hair is very, it's luscious these days. You got like long, you back to the long locks. I dig it. Yeah, in the off season and most times of the year, I don't get many cuts. <laughs> you know, 
So uh, I'll keep it long until probably sometime close to opening day or soon after the season starts. And then I'm like, all right, clean it up and then just let it grow again. It's a, it's a endless cycle. Um, I guess as it is for all of us, um, unless we're trapped in space and there's no escape. Yeah. How do you get a haircut in that situation? Yeah, you can't get a haircut, haircut in space. It's like a huge pain. Yeah, you have to get like a floby, right? Yeah, probably. It's got to be like one of those vacuum things. It's yeah. like a Ferminator for a dog. You can't have that stuff floating around. Yeah, that, that seems terrible. Caps. Clogging up instruments and everything. Meanwhile, I'm like George Costanza here clinging to some scraps of a once proud society of hair. Um, anyway, well, we got a lot to talk about. It's like we're like 10 minutes into the show. Whenever we start episodes like this, I think of that one dude who left us a, a review on Apple Podcasts like four months into the pandemic. It was like, these dudes don't even talk about baseball because there was no baseball. So I'm sure he's loving this episode of the show before the show. Um, but we welcome you in. You can get in touch with us, podcast at MILB.com, uh, as we are really a month away from pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training, as wild as that is. And uh, we're kicking things off on this week's episode of the show before the show with uh, really a crossover between baseball and the usage of a baseball facility for a non-baseball event, which is one of my favorite things that teams do over the offseason as we turn to uh, to Ben to tell us about the AHL Outdoor Classic at the home of the Charlotte Knights in Charlotte, North Carolina. I love how hockey has started doing this over the last really like 10, 15 years now, uh, starting with the NHL uh, and the Winter Classic and moving to the Stadium Series and now minor leagues, uh, not just in the United States, really around the world. Uh, will do games in outdoor venues and minor league baseball, such a perfect crossover venue possibility for outdoor hockey games. Tell us about the Charlotte Knights foray into it, Ben. Yeah, they're not foray, they're triple A, but oh, right, 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 right. right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wish you could see Sam's eye roll just now, <laughs> but yeah, this past Saturday, January 13th, the Charlotte Knights hosted the inaugural Queen City Outdoor Classic in AHL American Hockey League contest between the hometown Charlotte Checkers and the Rochester Americans, who are often referred to as like, I don't follow hockey too much, like the. Um, a Mercs, the Mercs, yeah, a Mercs, yeah, yeah A M E R K S. Um, but this is the first time that Charlotte had hosted outdoor hockey. It's been pretty rare in at minor league ballparks in general. Um, the AHL's outdoor classic has not happened every single year, but kind of like Tyler was saying, for the last fifteen years, it's been a you know quite regular event. This is the third one held at a minor league ballpark. Um, speaking of Rochester and their a Mercs, uh, they played a game in twenty thirteen at the frozen frontier game at frontier field uh, that ballpark is now called innovative field, but there was an AHL outdoor game in Rochester. And then in 2015 uh, Sacramento uh, Raleigh field, home of the uh, river cats hosted one uh, between teams in Stockton and Bakersfield. Um, so this is the third AHL outdoor classic to be at a minor league ballpark. First in Charlotte, first time uh, Charlotte has hosted any, uh, outdoor you know, professional hockey game. And I talked to the team's uh, chief operating officer, Dan Rajkowski, and it was interesting to hear how it came about. I mean, he said, first of all, uh, it really goes back to being at uh, San Diego for the winter meetings in 2014. There was a uh, you know winter end of the winter meetings gala at Petco Park, which I also attended. And so he saw just all the winter theme uh, things you could do at a ballpark. So that got him thinking in that direction. And then seeing uh, an ice skating rink at Coronado Island in San Diego and thinking like, Hey, if they can have ice in San Diego, they can have it in Charlotte. Um, but 
there's more that happens after that. But a main thing is that in 2020 with the uh, lost COVID season, the Knights, like every team, was you know more aggressively looking for ways to get some revenue. And they started up their uh, Light the Knights Festival. Uh, you know, their home of Truist Stadium, you know, is in Uptown Charlotte, you know, a beautiful ballpark in terms of being right in the heart of Uptown with huge buildings surrounding uh, the ballpark. So it's a great facility uh, for that type of event. They started Light the Nights, a holiday festival you know, that goes on you know, over a month in 2020. It was a success. They kept doing it. They added an ice rink in 2022. And then that really kick-started being like, okay, now we're getting an ice rink as part of our holiday festival. Maybe we could host a game. And uh, you know, after a lot of talk with the Checkers and uh, the AHL, uh, they got it together. They drew over eleven thousand fans, you know, to this outdoor hockey game, a total sellout. You know, it's interesting because they and they moved the um the rink that that was in the outfield for the holiday festival, moved it closer to the infield so people could see, you know, so fans could see better, eleven thousand fans, but it's still different, you know. You sit front row behind home plate at a ballpark at a baseball game, and that's awesome. You know, for this hockey game, those were not some of the best seats. So it's kind of funny to look at the seating bowl and realize you have to kind of reorient yourself in terms of where you want to sit for a hockey game. But they had a huge crowd, um, you know, really enthusiastic uh, sellout. Fireworks beforehand, fireworks after, you know, and everyone just seems uh, that I talked to online and in person um, just seems to uh, – I thought it was an, an awesome event. And, you know, I decided to dive in and cover it because it's January, not too many things happening at minor league ballparks. Um, but it is interesting to think of um, doing this. There's a huge upfront cost of doing this, <laughs> you know, like uh, installing a rink, and, you know, so for the nights, they already had it going, you know, with the holiday festival that they were doing, but, you know, all the flooring, then moving the rink. And one of the reasons it was good for them to do this year is because it was part of their larger plan to replace the infield this year. So it was like, okay, now's a good time to host this game because we're already replacing the infield. But I think those kind of things speak to why, even if it's very successful, this is some successful events, it's just like, oh, we'll do it next year. It's an annual thing now. I don't think we're going to see this every single year in Charlotte, but it um, showed that it's a, a success. Hopefully it can come back one day and hopefully other teams that, you know, that do have the budget and the facility uh, and a relationship with a, a local professional hockey team, you know, can continue to pull these games off because it is a really cool thing. I'm not a huge hockey fan, but I think outdoor hockey, well, just hockey live and in person is really fun. And I did go to an AHL outdoor classic once uh, at Citizens Bank Park uh, with the uh, Adirondack Phantoms, who are now in Lehigh Valley. But when I was in high school, they played in Philadelphia at like the old spectrum across the street. So I went to those games all the time because I couldn't really afford Flyers games in high school, but you could still go to the spectrum and see AHL. And those games were really fun. They had an enforcer fighter dude named Frank Bialois, who I will love forever. And, you know, in high school, all we wanted to do is see Frank the animal Bialois get out on the ice. But now I am uh, rambling. And, that uh, is the, that's a perfect hockey story, though. That's that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so it was, it was a lot of fun. Those games against the Hershey Bears, man, they would sell out at the spectrum and the fights would be a plenty. That's all we really <laughs> wanted to see. <laughs> that is fantastic. I also, uh, the next the next wave... The next generation, I think the three of us need to figure out how do we stage baseball games inside NHL arenas? Maybe just like wiffle ball. Maybe we get out there on skates. You know, there was a plan at one point to try to put baseball into the Winter Olympics back in like the the early 1900s, and they would play it on ice. Why don't we just do that? Let's just try the next thing 
is wiffle ball at the intermission of NHL games. That'll sweep the nation. I think the yeah, three of us I should, mean, we should pilot well, that. We might have to get some new players for that. I can't imagine like the Dodgers signing off on Shohei Otani representing Japan on, in the ice baseball. You never know, like, Sam. That's you never not, know. You never know. Throw Maybe cold he's a great skater. The guy does yeah. everything else. He does everything else well. Why yeah. would he not be? I'm sure he's yeah. nimble on his feet and on his on his toes and Absolutely. all that kind of Shohei stuff. Shohei Otani's a 50 goal a year scorer in the NHL. I would like um, to see it. I would well, too. Since we are on the topic of ice baseball, it's a great time to mention, you know, our colleague, uh, Matt Monahan, uh, just wrote a story this week about a baseball league um, among Arctic explorers, you know, in a ship that was stuck in the ice. And it's a wild read and a, a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, when we talked about our favorite things of the year and I mentioned the terror uh, movie or a, a show. Which I just a, got, by the way, from the library. Oh, excellent. I, 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 I hope you enjoy you. it. I hope you enjoy endless recitations uh, regarding the uh, specifics of scurvy symptoms. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, I've become kind of a fan of uh, those Arctic explorations and reading about baseball on the ice, uh, which was, you know, one way inspiring because these men are trapped on the ice and they need something to focus on. But one, the specifics of playing a game in like negative 30 degrees. I mean, baseball is very different when it's played in negative 30 degrees on ice. And it was just such a brutal world out there. There was one game where like a freak blizzard came in and five guys died because they couldn't get back to the ship. I'm not laughing. It's just so insane. I guess that I was laughing. You were laughing. But <laughs> I'm not laughing like, ha, 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 those guys die, but just like, wow, like, can you think of a more extreme condition to play baseball? But anyway, uh, check out that story that came out on MLB.com uh, this week, written by Matt Monahan. There is nothing better than what Matt and Mike Claire uh, put on the site. They get to write some of the coolest stuff. Uh, so go check that story out. Um, all right, Ben, we are into uh, alternate identity time. We're we're through sort of redesign, rebrand time, and now we're getting into alternate identity season. And we've got a couple of new food identities. And now I guess we just need to expect that on an annual basis, the Akron Rubber Ducks front office will roll out uh, – culinary delight that none of us has ever heard of. And this year it is the Akron Barberton fried chicken and hot rice. Uh, or maybe that's plural. Maybe they will play as the Barberton fried chicken and hot rices. Uh, but that is apparently I looked it up. Barberton is like 15 minutes Southwest of Akron. And tell me about this. I'm really more intrigued about the hot rice, like fried chicken. I can, I can get an idea of what that is. What is the hot rice? Tell me the story behind the Barberton fried chicken and hot rice. You know, I don't know a ton about this story. It's, it's we every year with a lot of these food identities. And I feel like particularly Akron, we all go on a journey of discovery together. You know, they did the Jojos uh, in 2022 based on the side potato, the dish, the side dish of uh, kind of fried potatoes. Uh, they did sauerkraut balls last year, which we've talked about quite a bit. So now, yeah, as Tyler, as you said, fried chicken and Barberton fried chicken and hot rice. And it goes back to a uh, restaurant opened uh, about 90 years ago by uh, Serbian, Serbian immigrants, Belgrade Gardens. And that restaurant is still in business today. So there's some imitators around the region, but their chicken, their fried chicken and it's in the town of Barberton that's Barberton fried chicken and i looked it up and it seems pretty you know simple fried chicken not a ton of seasoning but they have this signature hot sauce um that they can be applied to the chicken as well as the rice itself so i think the uh hot rice re re um is a reference to the this restaurant's signature hot sauce that is you know kind of mixed into the meal um 
So yeah, we'll learn about it together. I mean, Jim Fander, the general manager says, generations of Akronites have celebrated special moments around this dish and people have flocked from around the world to Barberton to try this delicious, unique take on fried chicken. Um, and that rice is, it has a, it's rice and tomato sauce seasoned with hot peppers. So uh, that's the hot rice. But yeah, again, we're still we're still learning awesome. about this. So I assume they're not going to be the Akron Barberton fried chicken and hot rice, but just call themselves Barberton. Um, and the and the uh, the logo is a uh, a swinging chicken, if you will, holding a uh, a an angry fowl, holding a piece, holding a drumstick, kind of like a bat. And it seems to be dipped in some of that uh, signature hot sauce. So and it's like a little dark that it's like a live chicken holding part of a dead chicken. But don't think about it too much that way. It is. You know, in the Arctic, sometimes the men had to resort to such things. <laughs> We're just bringing it all full circle. Um, okay, that is one food identity. Uh, there's another one from uh, one state over and in the same league in the Eastern League, uh, the Reading Fighting Phils uh, have come along with a new identity, a food-based identity. Now, apparently, these words can end with ED at the end, and they might not also end with ED. I'm going to let the Nor'easters uh, take us through this, but the uh, Reading Cream Chip Beef or the Creamed Chipped Beef or the Cream Chipped Beef or the Creamed Chipped Beef. Anyway, uh, Ben, please tell us about this one. Yeah, well, we're going to have to uh, get in touch with Reading because the graphic they put out in announcing this identity, which they will play on their annual morning game, an 11 a.m. game uh, on July 30th, uh, the graphics they put out say cream chipped beef, C-H-I-P-P-E-D beef. But then in the press release, it just says cream chip beef with no E-D on the chip. So um, a little... uh, a little bit of confusion over exactly what this uh, identity is going to be called. I did have a uh, cream chip beef on toast growing up, uh, semi-regular, you know, being from Pennsylvania. It is just a, a creamy sauce, just kind of like thickened milk, great, like a kind of country gravy type um, base with little bits of uh, chip beef in it, you know, kind of. I don't know what chip beef entails exactly, but it's been kind of preserved and freeze dried. It lasts forever and it cooks in the sauce and then you pour it on toast and cream chip beef gained prominence in America primarily because it was a common food um, served to the soldiers in World War II and they called it SOS. So the Reading Fight and Phil's press release says SOS Fight and Phil's to play as cream chip beef for 21st morning game. SOS it could stand for same old stuff or save our stomachs, but really the primary acronym here is not something we can quite say on a family podcast, but it is, you know, S on a shingle is, uh, is what SOS really stands for. Um, so yes, that is a derogatory term for this food, but it's also celebrated now, you know, it's SOS cream chip beef. So I think a lot of the, the fighter, a lot of the, those who served in World War II certainly might have gotten sick of it uh, when they had it all the time, uh, but then also kind of had an affinity for it um, later. I remember being in Harrisburg and ordering cream chip beef uh, at a diner, and there was some Korean War veterans nearby, and they like kind of gave me a nod and like, "Yeah, that's 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 a real man's dinner." And I was like, "You, you're right, it is," and I'm really glad that I just got some 
some that, that you endorsed my meal, you know, some Korean war vets at a diner. I, I appreciated that. that is and really cool. how did you call it growing up then? Cause you said like there were nights where your mom would serve you this meal being an Eastern Pennsylvania native. Did you guys say creamed chipped beef, cream chip beef? Like what, yeah. when you first think of this, how do you say it? Definitely no ED and creamed cream. I think so it's not like creamed corn. It's not like that. It's yeah, I'm creamy. sure some people say it like that, but I would call it cream, probably just cream chip beef. Just and then because the difference between saying chip and chipped is so subtle that in a way I don't even know what I said. I was probably thinking chipped, but would just say cream chip beef. And it's hard to tell the difference, which I think is why there's a little uh confusion with all this. Um, it is not the most photogenic food. I mean, it's like a it's meat in a white thick sauce on toast and the, the logo kind of reflects that it's just uh kind of an indistinct hunk of uh something on toast <laughs> description was disgusting <laughs> i mean sos <laughs> I, don't know why that, I don't know why that got me so much but i was like wow that sounds really gross when you put it that way <laughs> Yeah, but it's good. I, I like it. I mean, I don't think it is gluten-free, unfortunately. Uh, so I haven't had it recently, but um, I have fond memories of it. And I always enjoyed it when it you know was in the mix as a kid. It wasn't like a you know in heavy rotation or anything. But I think sometimes if my mom didn't have too much time for dinner, you know, it was a pretty easy one to get together. And kids liked it. I also like. I can't. I'm I'm sitting here like ah, oh, it sounds really gross. My mom used to make a dish which was uh like. It was a grilled chicken or roasted chicken or shredded chicken or something with just cream of mushroom soup dumped onto it. So, yeah, yeah, like that's not that's not really any different. And it was delicious. I loved it. So, yeah, I don't know what I'm being all judgy for. Yeah. Cream of mushroom soup. I'm sure it's still utilized in that manner, but I feel like it was particularly prevalent in cooking. Yeah. Kind of day to day home cooking. uh, Yeah. It's not just like a soup that people sit around and eat. It's like, here's something that we're going to use to cook with. Yeah. Use as a base as some kind of sauce or in a casserole. My mom made a. A chicken broccoli casserole that relied Ooh. heavily on cream of mushroom soup. Maybe good. we'll see the, uh, no, it, it's not going to work. Cream of chicken soup, cream of mushroom soup casseroles in one of these teams. No, it's not going to work. Yeah, I'll work right with that. The logo is like a Pyrex dish with, you know, with, uh, obviously it would be like a live mushroom holding a bunch of dead mushrooms. It would be like, <laughs> a, you know, it's like a very dark thing about the circle of life. Um, well, all of that stuff, uh, you can get the details, uh, MILB.com. You can, of course, subscribe to the Ben's Biz Beat, uh, the newsletter, which is there at MILB.com as well. And, uh, Ben, what else we got coming up? Anything, uh, fun and exciting on the horizon the last two weeks of January? You know, that's the, those are the big things right now. I'm working on some, uh, larger scale stuff right now, but, um, in terms of like really coming down the pike, we do, you know, both of those alternate food identities we just talked about, I'll cover them in next week's newsletter, along with most likely another team uh, from that same general uh, region and level of play that has something uh, coming up next week as well, which I think will be a real fun one. So, and we'll start seeing just more and more of these things in general as we lead up to the season. I've seen some uh, early promo schedule announcements, um, you know, often not with visuals or too much information, but, you know, they're starting to come out now and, you know, making a note of it. And, you know, sometimes I get this information. I'm like, what do I really do with this? Like Vinny, there's going to be a Vinny Sasquatch, a Tino bobblehead. Oh yeah. His nickname is a Sasquatch. Yeah. 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 And in Northwest Arkansas, which makes sense. They have a, um, 
Bigfoot Sasquatch mascot already and their Royals affiliates. So um, sort those sort of things. You just like, all right, this is kind of interesting, but there's no visual. It's January. What do I do with this? You know what I do? I come onto this spaceship and I talk to you two about it. <laughs> well, you can find Benjamin Hill uh, on the social medias at Ben's Biz. He's at the Ben's Biz on Instagram. And uh, all right, coming up, we are uh, gonna we're gonna go to the player side of things. Samuel, um, a guy who I just learned his first name is listed uh, on MILB.com as one word, David John. But you know him as DJ Hers, the Washington Nationals. Uh, but I did not realize that his name is actually David John, one word. Uh, and uh, you got a chance to catch up with DJ Hers. Yes, I did. Uh, last week on the program, obviously, we had Cardinals top prospect Mason Wynn as part of the rookie program. Uh, Mason Wynn had already debuted in the majors. DJ Hers has not, but he is on the 40-man roster now for the Washington Nationals. He had a very busy uh, 2023 season, was traded from the Cubs to the Nats. Uh, in the Jamer Candelario deal at the deadline. So we talk about how we found out about that, how we found out about the 40-man roster, what that means for his 2024 moving forward, and also his Vulcan changeup uh, grip, which he does explain and kind of show to the camera. So you're going to have to kind of use your mind's eye if you're listening to this. Uh, but there's also a video component to this that is on MLB.com right now. So go look that up and find that Vulcan changeup. It's really interesting to hear him talk about it. So here's me talking to DJ Hers last week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, DJ, it's been a big offseason for you, specifically with your addition to the 40-man roster with the Nationals in November. Um, what was it like going through that process, and what does it mean to you to now be on the Major League 40-man roster? Uh, shoot, man. it was we. I finished up uh, Fall League, and luckily my, my mom and my brother flew out, and I, I we drove all the way to Arizona in the first place. So uh, I wanted some help to drive back, so my mom and brother flew out, and as we were uh, driving back, I think the the deadline for the 40 man was coming up and I'm in the back seat while my mom's taking the turn driving and I got the call uh, from a Washington guy and and I, he told me I, I was put on the 40 man and my, my whole my mom and my brother, we were all celebrating and he told me take them out to some good breakfast or dinner, <laughs> whatever time that is. And I was like, of course, man. And it's just crazy to come from from a high school and being being an eighth round guy and and just believing in myself that like I knew that if I got college or not college but I knew if I got professional coaching and I had somewhere where I could fully develop and and all thanks to the Cubs and and now the Nationals but uh just knowing I had people that could solely devote themselves to develop me I knew I could take my game to the next level because I, I've never had professional coaching I've never had any pitching coaching at all so that's probably why I was so raw but now to see where I've come from now from then it's it's been major changes and it's it's just so cool to see the hard work pay off and 
and we got a long ways to go, but uh, it's it's cool to get this one milestone right now. Yeah, and, and you know, obviously, guys change a lot in their pro careers, no matter what. But you talking about coming from a place of not getting that level of instruction in high school, what's been the biggest change for you as a pitcher, like where you are now to where you were coming out of North Carolina? Uh, definitely, it was high school was a lot easier. I was, I was <laughs> it was a lot more dominant, and I could just throw anything by people and. Uh, the biggest change for me, and that's changed my whole career, is is the change up. I, I don't know if I ever went to UNC Chapel Hill that I would 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 have been given the grip, but I, I was. It was uh, right before COVID hit. Um, the Cubs guy named Casey Jacobson put the Vulcan grip change up in my hand. We threw it, and it was like, holy crap! That that's the pitch, and it's never changed. And I I knew when I said. When I get home for COVID, I'm going to learn this pitch. Like, this is going to be my bread and butter with my fastball. And I worked on it every single day, and it completely changed my whole career in baseball, pitching, and it made it, it made everything just a lot, lot easier because I already had a really deceptive fastball and a decent curve. And now I had the changeup where this it was it was it was just God given and it was just meant to be. And um now now we're learning the slider, and the slider became a an awesome pitch pitch for me to throw to lefties. And one thing the Cubs worked with me before I got traded was was just getting a little bit more online with the with the with the plate because I got a very unique delivery with the crossfire. And uh, I remember Breslow said if it was on a one to ten scale of how unique and uh just how crazy it was, your your delivery is probably on a nine. And if and we love that because it's so deceptive and that's what makes you like really good. But if we could back that up to like a seven point five to an eight to get more to get more in the zone, then let's do that. And we busted our butts, me with the Cubs, and and I kind of took that from the Cubs to the Nationals, and it's cool to see it's paying off, and uh, it's getting a lot better. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted to ask about that Vulcan changeup in particular um, because we are on video. Can you just kind of show people who might not understand what does a Vulcan grip look like, and what makes that changeup work really well for you? Uh, so basically when the seams are down like this, so they're the horseshoes down, uh, I spread my these two fingers and I try to push it all the way deep down and then I circle change off that. And I basically, I, I'm really good at pronating, so I can really get here and then pronate to finish at the end. And that's why I get the downward uh, little arm side run. And it's just, it's 10 miles per hour off my fastball and it looks like a fastball all the way to the plate and then it just drops off and, I mean, I, I'm so blessed to to have learned that pitch and for uh, Casey Jacobson to, to put that in my hand because I would have I would have never had that. I was just throwing a traditional uh, four seam changeup, and it was it was decent, but it was it was not like a it was not a plus pitch yet. And and so I I'm just so grateful for that. Yeah, and how quickly did you take to it? Was it immediately like the first one you threw was like, oh, this is where has this been my entire life? It was literally the first first pitch. It was like <laughs> right here and boom, it just dropped off. And I looked back and we both looked at each other like we were like, holy crap. And then I threw another one, boom. And he was like, yep, we're not changing it. That's it. We're good. And, and it, literally, it literally took off from there. And then it was more of just being able to command it, be able to do it consistently because – some days you're not going to have your best stuff. You're not going to have your best changeup, but being able to adjust and figure out what adjustments we need to make to to get back there or somehow get close to that and, and just finding ways to to get through the, the bad days that you don't have the stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to take some steps back, you talked about being part of the Cubs and the national systems. You're traded at the trade deadline this year, uh, going from the Cubs to the Nats in the Jamer Candelario trade. You were with Tennessee at the time. You joined Harrisburg, so you stayed at that double-A level. Just what was it like going through that trade? How did you find out, and what was your initial reaction? Uh, so I, I we there was like 12 of us going to golf, like a big group for Tennessee and um, we went and golfed and played pretty good and uh, come back, take a nap. Me and a couple other buddies like Owen Casey and a couple others, we were uh, we were all about to go fishing. And I was taking a quick little nap with my girlfriend, and I get a call from uh, Jared Banner, and I was, like, talking to my girl, like, oh, finally we're going to AAA. Like, this is sick. And uh, he just said, I just want to let you know that you just got traded. And it was kind of kind of crazy because I was waking up from my nap, so I didn't, I wasn't fully like in the in like, like like acting like it was like real, and so like I was like, oh okay, like am I dreaming right now? And then he told me I was getting traded to Nationals, and uh, it's it's been awesome ever since. And just know I got traded for a big league all star, and he just got paid some big money. It's 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 awesome to know that the the Nationals. Um, see some worth in me and have have value in me, and it's just cool to go to an organiz- organization that's super young too, that's ready to win. And uh, I'm I'm just so happy to be a national. Yeah, what what have you learned about the nationals since that trade? Uh, we're we're hungry, man. You got we got so many young guys that are just going to the Harrisburg team. Like we had Cruz, we had Woods, we had Lipscomb, we had Brady House. We had a bunch of guys that were like, dang, this is this is exciting to see. And that's kind of how it was like when I first when we were first like with the Cubs and they we got Pete, we got Owen, we got all those guys. So it was cool to take like from what I when I saw like a couple years ago, now seeing it again, but now we're all in double A. It, it's super exciting and I'm I'm glad to be a part of this group. And I think years to come we're we're gonna be really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess you've grown used to having really good center fielders behind you oh, between PCA, Wood, oh, uh, man, Cruz. It's awesome. <laughs> you don't know how much as a pitcher we love it, but man, <laughs> it gets to some balls that we're like, wow, thank you so much for saving us right there. Yeah. What, what was your favorite moment from, from playing in front of that Harrisburg team where you realized these guys are as good as advertised? Man, I Woods just makes everything look so, so kind of, I want. I don't want to say nonchalant, but that's kind of how he is. It's just like it looks easy to him. And then when like when everybody kind of puts it together, like, dude, there's there's so much talent on that field. But I just loved being in Harrisburg. The the place was on a the field was on a river, remote river, and I thought it was just super sick. And dude, it's it's it was a it was a cool place to play play baseball at. Very cool. And then you mentioned this before. You were coming back from the fall league when you got told you were going on on the 40 man um you know wh- how did you approach the fall league because your results were pretty good 25 strikeouts and in 17 innings did you feel like that was proving yourself to the organization was that just getting an extra work how did you view the afl uh so i i thought my season was was kind of done i i told the nationals i was like i want to i want to go to the fall league i want to be able to prove myself that i can do this on a on a bigger against better like bigger and better talent like guys that have like that can really hit. And that's how the, the fall is known about. It's like guys can really hit the ball here. And I wanted to be able to prove that to, 
to the nationals to kind of everybody in the baseball world that like I'm a legit starter and I I know for a fact I'm I'm a starter and I can compete and it might not be the most traditional way that a starter does it but I go out there I find ways to get out and just to show that I could do it against some big prospects and some really good hitters it was it was more proving it to myself but also proving to the nationals that like a lot of guys want to go home and say say they're done for the season but I wanted to go keep playing baseball show that I can eat these innings and have big inning uh, limits and I, my arm is going to be still good. I hit my highest velo out in the fall league after 90 innings. And so I, I just wanted to go kind of prove that like I'm, I'm a legit guy. Yeah, no, and obviously it worked out with the, with the 40 man roster. What is your approach now to the off season and going into this spring training, knowing that you're technically on the roster, anybody on the roster is in consideration for a major league spot. How, how are you, what are you doing to prepare for spring? Uh, one is just kind of like honing in what, like what I'm really good at is, is just the change up and being able to consistently throw it in the zone more. Um, obviously my, my thing is, is walks and being in the zone as much as I can. And, and a lot of that's coming from uh, staying on plane, making sure like I'm I'm going towards home plate more often and a little less crossfiery. And a lot of that's just doing drill work that that the Cubs kind of gave me, and I'm knocking those out every single day. And a lot of it was like I could see that like it was getting a lot better, and just be able to repeat my mechanics. It going from the early or from the first start in the year to the last start, my mechanics look so much better, and I'm 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 happy with the place it is. And then just kind of honing in the the slider and the curveball, and uh, the slider became a pitch. I I know like the slider allowed me like I, I think I was walking five percent to lefties this year, and then to righties it was like eighteen percent. So it was a big skewed line to like the slider just gave me a whole another pitch to throw to lefties, and I know I can throw it for a strike, so it became a strike pitch. Now it's finding that that pitch for the righties and being able to lower that number a little bit. But it, it was it was a big jump from from going to 2022 to 2023 and and I feel like I'm a complete different pitcher and now it's taking everything that we did in 23 and just working a little bit more and getting a little bit better at at that type of stuff mm -hmm. yeah fair enough all right well here are the uh quick fire questions that I was telling you we, we would end on uh six of them real quick first one this one we've been asking everybody what is your or who have you been told is your celebrity look like uh dude, what's the dude from uh uh Heisenberg, the guy you know that show? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh from Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. There's one young dude, he's uh dude, I can't remember his name. But I see it all over Twitter that I look like this guy from uh Breaking Bad. It's the guy, it's not Heisenberg, it's not the ball head guy, but it's the other guy that's younger, and he's in a lot of other movies and shows. Oh, 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 oh. Um, yes, I know who you're talking about. Um, Jesse you know Plemons? Name? Jesse yes, Plemons? Him. Yes. Him. A lot of people say I look like Jesse Plemons. Man, I, I like that one a lot. He is in everything and he's good in everything. So Yeah, that's what, that. people, what people would say. All right, all right. I like that one. Uh, what is your wildest moment in baseball? Wildest moment? Or wildest thing you've seen on a baseball field? Oh, man. Um Dude, to be honest, watching dude watching Pete out there make plays is is unbelievable, and it was it was it was really cool to see 
just like I've I've never seen a defender like like Pete before, and just the jumps and reactions and reads he gets, it was it was it was awesome to see. Yeah, no, that's a good one. And uh, you know, as you're knocking on the door here of the major leagues, if you were to give be given the option to choose any number, what would your preferred uniform number be and why? Uh, so me and my me and my dad have always kind of. We we we've always wanted seventy seven. Like when I got when I first got drafted with the Cubs, we we uh, me Matt Dory and Jed, we all they came down to Fayetteville to make sure like I signed and stuff. And uh, we kind of made an agreement like if I ever got to the big leagues with with the Cubs, like seventy seven would be locked in for me. And they they agreed. And so all throughout spring spring training, when I was with the Cubs, I had seventy seven. Uh, we're working on it right now with the the Nash in spring training to have seventy seven, but I just I just love the number seven, and then having that double number seven is 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 pretty sick. And now there's a lot more guys coming with seventy seven, like Luka Doncic and oh, yeah. stuff like that. But I, I love the number seventy seven. It for your love of seven, does that come from anywhere specific? Uh shoot, man i i I don't I don't really know, but I just number seven was was always a sick number to me. Okay, fair enough. Uh, when you're looking forward. Two pitching in the major leagues. Who do you most want to face, dude? I I want to face the best of the best because I know what I can do on the mound, and I know how deceptive I am, and I know that I got some really good stuff. And my my, I feel like my mental game and like and how I go about my business and how I am on the mound, and I feel like I'm I'm a, I'm a warrior out there. So I I know it's kind of cliche to say face the best of the best, but I know I feel like I could really compete with the best of the best and that I think I would I would really surprise people and turn some eyes. So anybody who's the best of the best. I, I mean, obviously, Shohei and obviously those type of guys are like Judge and, and all of them. But um, I think just facing whoever – just facing the first big leaguer will be sick. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. And you, this won't come as a surprise. Shohei is a very popular answer. For both oh, hitters yeah, and pitchers in, in this. Uh, <laughs> so I totally get that. Uh, what is your favorite moment in baseball, Ben, so far? Uh, definitely in, in 2021 when uh, I came back home to Fable, North Carolina against the Woodpeckers. And I was, I think I was 19 or 20 at the time. And uh, I came back home and I got to pitch against against my hometown city. They put me on the big scoreboard and said we never usually post up. Or say things about uh, opponents, but welcome home, DJ, and we're glad to have you here. And all my friends and family and old coaches were there, and it was it was like the most attendance uh, that year for for a game. And and I I ended up pitching four innings and had ten strikeouts. I got my hundredth career strikeout in the minor leagues, and it was it was it was really sick to do that in front of my family. And uh, yeah, that was that was a cool moment. Yeah, not many guys get a chance to pitch in their own hometown like that. So sure. I'm glad you guys made the most of it. Um, all right, this last one is, you know, we're asking everybody about this. It, Spring Breakout is a new initiative that Major League Baseball is doing. Uh, it's pitching, you know, prospect versus prospect in the middle of spring training. You guys, the Nationals, are going up against the Mets on March 15th. You know, what are your kind of early thoughts on this and what are you looking forward to most about potentially playing in a matchup like that? Uh, I, think it's, I think it's really cool to be able to, Put put the prospects and some of these young guys that could be could be on the major league team for years to come, and I think it's really cool to broadcast all that and let people see eyes on that. And I think it's going to be an awesome game against two like powerhouse 
kind of minor league systems with with uh, Gilbert and Acuna and all those guys over on the Mets, and we got to face them in Binghamton this year, and it'll be really cool to, to kind of do it on like a kind of a big league type of environment. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, rolling along on this week's episode of the show before the show, uh, we're going to talk about some uh, top prospects as we head into the 2024 season. MLB Pipeline's top 10 positional player lists uh, for prospects coming out right now. And uh, three such lists have been unveiled. Right-handed pitchers, left-handed pitchers, and catching prospects, which just came out today as we're recording this uh, on the 18th. Uh, Sam, no surprise on the righty side. Paul Skeens is the top prospect uh, among right-handed pitchers in minor league baseball. Uh, Kyle Harrison on the lefty side from the San Francisco Giants. Paul Skeens, of course, with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, but give us uh, the the standout themes, I guess, among uh, righties and lefties. Yeah, well, just starting with righties, um, you know, like you said, Paul Skeens, number one overall pick last year. Um, probably the best pitcher in this group, right? Like, we're doing our top 100. That's coming out next week on January 26th. But I feel like we can comfortably say at this point, Paul Skeens will be the number one pitching prospect in baseball. Um, just a stellar year last year at LSU. Everybody likes to talk about how often he touches triple digits, um, how he can sit there in certain starts. And I'm interested to see how that velo is going to play when he's not p- pitching once a week, maybe when he's pitching once or twice a week uh, at the pro level and adding more innings than he showed at LSU. But there are certain people who think his slider is even better than that fastball. Uh, the velocity is obviously the standout with the fastball. Shape's not great, but still, he's blowing it by guys because even in the modern game, guys can't touch 102. Uh, you throw in that slider, he's got a pretty good changeup, and he controls it all really well. I mean, there's just so many pieces here that make him a potential ace. You know, there are other really good pitching prospects in this right-hander group, and I think it's an interesting conversation for who's number two behind Skeens. We have Jackson Job who d- dealt with lumbar spine inflammation at the beginning of last year. And that caused some questions about like, how is he going to hold up? He was absolutely stellar after coming back. That includes time at, at four different levels. Then at the Arizona fall league, he had 84 strikeouts and only six walks in 64 innings. The fastball has been really, really improved to where it was coming out of high school. I talked to him in the AFL. He said it was like a dead zone fastball. Like it, the velo was pretty good, but it didn't have any movement. You, Batters knew exactly where it was going. Now it's got more ride, which makes it a potential plus-plus pitch. The slider has always been really special. He gets 3,000 RPMs of spin rate on that. He's improved the changeup. He's really killed spin on it to the point where lefties can't really hit him either. So I think he's comfortably number two now. Um, but there, you know, you could throw in a shout for Kate Horton, who was one of the most effective pitchers in baseball last year, at, or at least at the minor league level, as he climbed to double A in his first full season. Uh, pretty good stuff there. He's got a plus plus slider in his own right, a, a four pitch mix between the fastball, curveball, slider, and change. Pretty good control. All the pieces are there for Kate Horton to be an effective righty. Andrew Painter was our number one right hander at this time last year. 
was the best, best pitcher in minor league baseball in 2022. Then, unfortunately, dealt with some elbow issues in the spring that kept him from opening potentially in the Philadelphia rotation. Didn't pitch at all as the year went on, then finally underwent Tommy John surgery. So he's not only going off like no innings in 2023, he's going to miss out on much of this year as well. Maybe yeah, that was hope. the tough thing, waiting around to see right. if he would be ready to go and then delaying that operation until so much deeper into the season. Yeah, I mean, long term, it's it's better that Painter got Tommy John, obviously. Right. But there might be a time where we're going into 2025 where we're talking about him not pitching any professional innings for two years. I mean, that's really difficult to project, even though I think he's a, a potential ace. Um, so those are our top four right now. I think Job, Horton, Painter, like all of those guys are kind of in that conversation for number two. But given the level of stuff for Job, given the upward trajectory at the end of the year, he he ended up taking that spot for us. And then on the left-handed side, just because you mentioned that real quick, um, that's, a, that's a I think, a more fun conversation for who's number one in that group. We went with Kyle Harrison, the San Francisco Giants pitcher. Uh, he's got a fastball that's potentially plus-plus. It touches 97. It's got really, really good ride at the top of the zone. It's a flat approach angle as well, so guys really can't touch it very well. Uh, his slider, actually last year, uh, baseball savant or stat cast, uh, called it a slurve, and I think you could go either way. It's just a breaking ball, but it's a really good one. It breaks two planes really well. It mirrors well off the fastball. Um, guys can't really touch that. And it, we think the changeup improved enough where that could also be an above-average pitch. With Harrison, the question has always been with his control, and it wasn't very good last year at AAA Sacramento uh, where he walked 48 batters in 65 and two-thirds innings. That might have been the ABS. That might have been the automated ball strike system. By the time he made the majors uh, for San Francisco, made seven starts with them, he only walked 11 guys in 34 and two-thirds innings, uh, and even at one point was no-hitting the Dodgers. So – like Kyle Harrison is major league ready. He will be in the Giants rotation. The guys beneath him have a little bit either less experience, they're not knocking on the door, or they have some injury issues. Ricky Tiedemann, I think, like has an argument for the highest ceiling in this group. His fastball, his slider, his changeup, all plus pitches, all work really well. But he was dealing with biceps and shoulder injuries last year that really limited him. He only pitched 44 innings in the minors, made up for some of that last time in the Arizona Fall League, but he hasn't pitched more than 80 innings in a minor league season yet. We need to see him getting out there every other day. You know, I've, I've been talking to some Blue Jay sources about what the Jays could do with Tiedemann this year, and I think on the table is maybe opening him in the bullpen at the major league level because the pitches are so good, and that allows them to cap the innings a little bit more, keep them a bit more managed, but still uses bullets at the top level. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But the fact that we haven't seen Tiedemann out there for very long stretches keeps him below Harrison for now. And then at number three is Robbie Snelling, arguably one of the most effective pitchers in the minors last year. 182 ERA, 118 strikeouts in 103 and two-thirds innings. Pitched at single A, high A, and double A in his first full season. The fastball and curveball are both above average pitches. He's got the makings of a decent changeup, but he just spots everything really well and has a real bulldog mentality, goes right after hitters, isn't afraid to just try to blow it by them and say like, hey, listen, I'm going to throw it in the zone and it's on you to touch it. And that's worked really well for him so far. But again, just reached double A. We'll see where things go from here. He doesn't have that upper level experience or necessarily the ceiling of Harrison or Tiedemann because of the quality of the pitches. But you can't argue with this success. So that that's a fun debate at the top three on the left-handed pitcher side. 
All right, Sammy, the uh, catching list out now as well. And really no surprise at number one, uh, if you've been following a minor league catching talent, prospect catching talent, but it is still kind of amazing to see a 17-year-old in Ethan Salas who's leading that conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to weigh this, right? Like Ethan Salas is so advanced. He was the number one international prospect a year ago. The Padres believed so much in him that they had a $5.825 million international pool. They gave $5.6 million of that to Solace alone. They really went all in on him because the defensive work is so good. He was catching you, Darvish, like last spring when he was still 16 years old. And, and from what I heard, Darvish was really enthused by how he framed it, how he worked with him as a – uh, pitcher, how he was communicating things. Uh, this guy was like built to move quickly, but he also is in the right organization to move quickly. Like San Diego is willing to push their prospects. There's no doubt about that. So for him to go from not only just skip the complex leagues completely, but go single A, high A, and then double A because the San Antonio missions were in a postseason race and they wanted all their best prospects at one level was really astonishing. Um, now, you know, he dealt with the right knee issue at the end of the year. It seemed like this is a guy who wants to be out there every day and, and wants to be full bore and always working. And I wonder if he needs to kind of reel that in a, a little bit because he is a catcher. That's a that's a difficult position to play every day. You can't do that, especially when you're only 17 years old. They did a pretty good job of catching him some days, DHing him others. Um, but you know, Ethan Ethan Solis, I think if he had his druthers, would be up in the majors by the all-star break this year. I, I don't think that's gonna happen. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put that out there. But because the defensive work is so advanced, and I think the bat can be pretty good and the power is certainly going to play, we could see him next year in 2025, potentially like before his 20th birthday, when he's still only 19. Like that's that's an that's insanely amazing. quick. Yeah. And and I think part of that is the Padres, but also that's just solace in who he is. They love getting this guy to work with pitchers. Uh, and pitchers love working with him because he's so fluid back there and everything looks so easy. So, yeah, you're right. He was kind of an easy number one for us. But I think people are just catching on to Samuel Basayo in the in the Orioles system as well. And I think people in the Baltimore system think like, hey, listen, you know, we've we've had three number one prospects recently and I'm not spoiling anything by what's coming up. But like as things stand right now, Jackson Holiday is our number one overall prospect. Tune in next Friday to see if that holds up. They think Basayo could be there because he's so advanced offensively. He also made double A last year in his age 18 season, which would be insane if Solis didn't exist. Uh, the power is really good. The hit tool is really good. He does some things that catchers just don't traditionally do. So even if he does end up moving to first base and we have some questions about his overall fielding, the bat's still going to be very, very special. Um, so he slides into number two and Jefferson Caro is a personal favorite of mine, but that's kind of gone away now. <laughs> like I can't say like, Oh, he's, he's a favorite of mine because now he's number three on the catching list. Jefferson Caro could win multiple gold gloves at the top level. Like even Solace looks smooth back there. Jefferson Caro looks like he's just playing catch. He gets down on one knee. He frames it. Great. He has a stellar arm. Uh, I think he threw out around 34% of bat, uh, attempted base dealers in the Southern League last year. The arm strength is there. He moves quickly back there, so he makes sure the ball gets to second base real quick. And in the modern game, that's huge, right? Like, we have guys who are prepared to steal 90-plus bases. Hello, Victor Scott uh, and Chandler Simpson. Like, guys want to run now. 
And if you have a catcher who can limit the the run game in any way, and I think Caro can certainly do that, he has a really high floor. The bat, I think, is just going to be average, but he's a guy who, you know, and again, talking to some Milwaukee folks, they think can be like a six or seven hitter. You get that with a defense, that's an all-star. That's that's a guy you plug in there for a decade and just lead him, let him lead your uh both defense and your pitching group. Um, so some really exciting other names on here too. Kyle Teal, Red Sox catcher at number five, uh, really came on strong after last year's draft. Um, Blake Mitchell, who the Royals took in the top 10 last year. I know some people question that pick, but the power is real. The arm might be even better than Caro's. Uh, and yeah, so this is this is a fun catching group as well. Sam, the international signing period is open in 2024, and uh, one of the teams that seems to just year-on-year year make a massive splash in the international signing period uh, is the San Diego Padres. And we talked, uh, you know, just a moment ago about the fact that uh, the Padres currently boast the top-catching prospect uh, in baseball, Ethan Salas, because they gave him a gigantic portion of their international signing uh, pool money last year. This year, they jump right in as well and grab uh, Leo DeVries, the top-ranked international prospect on the market, uh, the 17-year-old shortstop out of Azua in the Dominican Republic. Um, he's really the big headline coming off the international market. But uh, as we see every single year, there are guys you know, in this top 50 that we've got ranked on the site and well beyond who are going to make huge impacts. Yeah, I'm a- yeah, when you look at DeVries, I mean, again, the Padres, they seem to just do this really well. Maybe they're just scouting really well, uh, and or maybe they're just making the best offers uh, to some of these guys. But DeVries, you know, one of my favorite details about him is his father played for the Dominican national basketball team. And DeVries has a history of playing as a point guard. Uh, which is really interesting. So he's got that kind of lateral quickness to him. He's listed as a shortstop for now. It seems like some folks think he might be moving over to second base. Either way, he's a guy you want up the middle, but he could be a really, really good hitter. Uh, He's a switch hitter for starters, which is a good place to be. He's six foot two for now. The power could be at least above average. Uh, Does a pretty good job. You know, he's he's stay in our blurb. We call it a loose natural rhythm. Um, so some people think he's going to get to 20 homers at a certain point with the above average bat. Like he, he just seems like such a natural out there. Um, you know, one of the comps, which, you know, you can take it or leave it comps this early is Jose Ramirez, uh, who has in some corners been one of the most underappreciated hitters in baseball and others is like year in and year out. One of the most consistent batters we have, And the also the a switch area, by the way, in the DR, right? Exactly. Um, so I, I think, you know, DeVries has said like Jose Ramirez is somebody I want to model my game after, uh, and long way to go here. You know, he's only 17 years old, turned 17 in October. Uh, but looking at how San Diego treated solace last year, I don't think DeVries is like as advanced defensively. And I think that's a big reason why they were willing to get aggressive with solace, but maybe, and I haven't talked to people on this, and I need to follow up. I could see him starting at least stateside, skipping the DSL completely, opening in the Arizona Complex League, and then we'll see what happens. Like maybe he hits really well and pushes for Lake Elsinore by the end of the season, which by any stretch would be super aggressive. Uh, we're just comparing him to Solace, who signed for more money, was considered a better prospect coming out, but DeVries has. I would not be surprised. You know, we'll see how things go in the spring. He has to get over here and start working out. And we have to start hearing more about him. 
but I could easily see him pushing on himself onto the top 100 pretty quickly uh, once he establishes himself stateside. And we'll see if he makes a similar big jump to Solace. Solace was not on our top 100 last year because we wanted to see it in pro ball. We saw it quick, and yeah. then he became a top 10 prospect. I don't know if DeVries will make it to top 10 uh, by this time next year, but I definitely think he'll get into the top 100 at least pretty quickly once we see him stateside and see just how well all of these various pieces play in his game. So you can check out uh, all of the news about uh, not only the international market getting uh, some big early uh, now mid-January headlines, uh, but also our prospect list top 10s positionally at MLB Pipeline. And uh, we will step aside. Josh Jackson swings by with this week's episode of Ghosts of the Miners. And then we're back to wrap it up next. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped. The scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club or player hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One once shined briefly on a fringe circuit of yore. The others never got a foot in the pro baseball door. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Houston Constellations. B. The Cape Canaveral Moonshooters. C. The Roswell Sunshiners. You must be very bright if you pick C, the Roswell Sunshiners, who just barely got off the ground in the old West Texas New Mexico League, playing in that otherworldly New Mexico railroad town. Roswell, which became synonymous with alien folklore after an alleged flying saucer crash in the region in 1947, first had a minor league team in 1923 with the short-lived and little-known Panhandle Pecos Valley League. But Roswell's population nearly doubled over the next decade and a half, which was actually a fairly slow rate of growth compared to that of the Southwest as a whole. Joe Tate, a Texan who'd pitched a couple seasons with the Philadelphia Athletics in the 20s and played in the minors until he was 40 years old in 1932, saw the region's population boom as an opportunity, and he organized a new league for the 1937 season. Although the circuit's final two entries weren't solidified until well into the spring and two of the six clubs had folded by mid-July, the West Texas New Mexico League opened play on May 4. By that time, Pate had already been summoned to Dallas to umpire in the Texas League, but his Class D loop went on. The Sunshiners of Roswell looked a little dim out of the gate, losing 11 of their first 20 games. Aww. But it was blue skies after that. Roswell placed six players on the All-Star team, including Marshall Scott, who was tied for the league league with 18 wins and went on to pitch for the Philadelphia Phillies in 1945. 
Scott was the lone sunshiner to see the light of day in the big leagues, but Roswell rose well in the standings, finishing the season second only to the Wink Sputters. And who but Wink could blink the sunshiners aside in the playoffs? Led by league triple crown winner Robert Hood, the Sputters busted the Shiners in the finals, three games to none. Although Roswell had an exceptionally bright future in the minors, Joe Bauman hit 72 homers for the Roswell Rockets in 1954, the West Texas New Mexico League continued for six more seasons without another entry from the city destined to gain astronomical fame, crashing out with American involvement in the Second World War in 1942. And that's how the Sunshiners' reign ended. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these players had a name worth repeating in the minors of yesteryear? A. Bam Bamahan. B. Yam Yerian. C. Zachariah Akariah. Want to know the answer? Say it five times fast. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer, Ben Hill, is scheduled to make a public appearance, and I've got to convince the jury to convict. Big thanks, as always, to uh, our pal Josh Jackson for stopping by the show before the show. Josh, um, I will log into Slack, and I'll just have random screenshots from Josh. Like, as he's doing his research into um, Ghost of the Miners episodes, he'll come across weird things and uh old newspapers and then it'll just send me little screenshots of them uh of headlines especially and i logged into one from this past sunday which is a headline that just says quote nurse has appendectomy that was the whole (laughs) i'm assuming that was the whole story uh so i would really like to know what that what that tale was in fact for and i hope that nurse made it well is it like a person named nurse no i think it's just like a nurse I don't think oh, it's like okay. I don't think it's like Nick Nurse, you know. I think it's just like a nurse. That's uh, what I, I was thinking. Is that yeah. like it's just a fun headline of like here's an update <laughs> on a nurse, but actually on somebody's name, a singular nurse. Yeah. Um, all right, you guys. Well, uh, we're gonna wrap up this week's episode of the show. Before the show, you can get in touch with us podcast at milb.com. Uh, and uh, I guess that'll that'll do it. Sam, next week, um, something more wintry. I don't need these fall patterns. They're not fall patterns. I don't know what that like. This is very Nordic. The more I look at it now, the more I'm like, yeah, it is a pretty wintry sweater. But uh, I'm just going to continue to throw out nonsensical insults at you. Yeah, he's still saying do better. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Sam. I'll wear my jacket inside. I will do this entire <laughs> podcast sweating next week if it if it proves to you that I have winter wear. Yeah, no, next actually, week you better see your breath when as you, when you talk. <laughs> because I'm in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, I actually brought like a full on balaclava, so maybe I'll wear that next week on the show. Before that, you can just see my eyes. That'll be the whole. That'll be the whole episode next week. Seems fun, even though yeah. I won't be here next week, but I'll still wear it for you. Ah, well, when you're still in Fargo, go outside and play some baseball. Take inspiration yeah. from those uh, trapped Arctic explorers and get out there and play the game. No excuse. If they can do it say, negative 30, I mean, come if on. If a squall comes in and I die, then use this podcast to tell my story, my legacy. of I was doomed to my ill fate uh, by Matt's story and by Ben reading that book, The Terror. That's right. Gone with the wind. (laughs) All right. That'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. For Sam and Ben and Josh and everybody else, my name is Tyler Vaughn. We'll catch you next week.